An industry under pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. Hey everyone, welcome back to another incomparable episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast right here on the Oil & Gas Global Network. This episode and all episodes in this program are brought to you by our very good friends at Cognite. And we do love our sponsors at OGGN because, uh, well, if you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it tens of times. Without them, there is no us. And without us... Where would you go for all of this amazing industry content? The answer is nowhere because there isn't any place. So please show some love to our sponsors, especially Cognite, uh, which is sponsoring. I mean, we love the fact that that they make it possible for us to deliver this to you, uh, i.e. paying the bills. But we also love what they do and what they're doing for the industry. And and that is why um, that's why we asked them to be a sponsor. And, and so we only work uh, with the we only work with the good ones here. So if we've got somebody as a sponsor, we are confident that you will be happy having them as a supplier of some sort, whatever it is that they do. And in this case, Cognite does amazing things with industrial data. So have a look at cognite.com or you can you can go right to the good stuff because uh, they got a special website uh, for OGGN. Well, it's not really just for OGGN listeners, but it's called makedatadomore.cognite.com. And uh, if you go there, you'll find out how you can make data do more. Okay, enough of that. My guest today, well, okay, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I don't have a guest today. It's just me. Now, um, the reason for this phenomenon is very dull, and so I'm not going to go into it right now. Uh, but suffice to say, uh, something happened and something else happened, and all you got is me. But the good news is, all you got is not just me, because, uh, well, as some as, uh, a lot of you know, that, um, you know, I do, we do, talk, we talk about modern technology on the show all the time. And we talk about all the new ways of doing things, and how cool it is, and all the ways that it's impacting the industry. But, um, but you know that I, I do have this thing. I love to go back and look at the history in the industry because it's fascinating. And the innovation and, and just the sort of raw ingenuity that went into getting hydrocarbons out of the ground 100 years ago was no less impressive uh, than it is today, you know, all things considered. So today, if you will, uh, imagine yourself stepping back in time, something like 90 years or so, and, and you know it's coming. Yes, it is Voices from the Oil Fields, the book that I have that I have talked about before, and, I, and I've shared bits and pieces of this book with you, and I've even had people say, hey, I really like that book. Where can I get a copy? And, um, you know, I don't, I don't even know if you can get a copy of this anymore. Well, yeah, you could probably look on in the usual places, and, and uh, I think it's still in print. Anyway, it's, it's Voices from the Oil Fields. It's written by a couple of guys named Paul Lambert and Kenny Franks, and this is a compilation of interviews 
with real people in the oil field, uh, mostly around the Texas, uh, Oklahoma area, way back in the 1930s and, I don't know, maybe the 40s. Um, so today, uh, I, got, I got a fascinating one here. I, I, you just, um, it's worth a podcast episode just to share this story with you. And um, this is uh, the name of this chapter in the book, which is each chapter is an interview with somebody, with a real person. I don't know how they found all these things, but, but, um, but they compile them. And, this is a, and, and the name of this, ch- this chapter is Shooters Don't Make But One Mistake. Now, if you're not familiar with, with uh, you know, what, what a shooter is, um, I know, now don't, don't, we're not talking about a, like when you go to a bar and you get a round of, sh- a round of shooters. That's a completely different experience. This is, um, sh- shooters uh, were the people who uh, basically were, you know, they, they were, had ways of stimulating a well so that it would produce more. And, and the favorite way was, of course, to, um, to, to drop liquid nitroglycerin down into the well, which already sounds like an exciting, I mean, it already sounds exciting, like an exciting story, nitroglycerin. Now, of course, we don't do this anymore. The LNG is not uh, available ever since there was a, an explosion in 1978. Uh, so, 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 but back, back in ni- the 1930s, now think about this, the 1930s, you had these people, these guys are out there, um, you know, dropping these uh, canisters, which I think they called torpedoes, um, into um, into the wells to stimulate. And and you know, it's not just about the operation of like that specific operation, but it's like everything that went into like transporting this stuff and storing it and mixing things up and putting like it's 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 fascinating stuff to think about how they were doing this a hundred years ago or ninety years ago. Um, so, so I'm gonna, just, but this is a good, this is a good little story, and, and you'll get a flavor of the for the whole, <laughs> for the whole process, uh, as you listen to it told by uh, by a guy named Shorty Moses, and he was a shooter for the Acme Torpedo Company, of course, the Acme Torpedo Company, and uh, and and this interview was conducted sometime. Uh, he was interviewed by a guy named Ned DeWitt in the late 1930s. We don't know the exact, uh, the exact date, but the interview, uh, so here's a little context as you listen to the story. Uh, it began at the company's magazine, which was a small red-painted structure squatting in the center of a 10-acre tract. Um, and, uh, and then in the building, so, the, so the, Ned DeWitt, the guy conducting the interview, he, he didn't think that the building was very interesting until he realized that it contained... Enough explosives to wreck the countryside. Um, so the interview with Shorty started off uh, by explaining all the necessary precautions uh, at the storage facility, and then it, and then it goes on from there. And they end up at Shorty's house, and and you know beer out of the fridge and the whole bit. So uh, so I'm just gonna now you have to keep in mind that this is written more or less in the uh, the original vernacular. So uh, so bear with me as I try to uh, try to do this justice. But this is it's a fantastic story. So let's listen to Shorty Moses, who, as it turns out, is the guest on today's episode. We made that ditch a purpose and put the cows in here for the same reason. Precautions. Look around the magazine here and you won't see any grass, huh? I get out here and mow it down so it won't get too high. 
and maybe catch on fire and set off my dump. Them cows, know why they're out here to pasture on our land? When people see cows here, they won't be so damn curious to know what's in the buildings here. They'll just think it's a hay shed and won't get up so close. We don't mark the land either. You didn't notice any danger signs, did you? If I was to put them up there, there'd be kids out here all the time banging away at the magazine, and they might accidentally set it off and get killed. I don't take no chances, not on anything. This door here has got two big locks on it, one on the bottom and one on the top. That ain't all. There's two more locks inside. I have to turn two keys at the same time to get the door open. Now look, see that sign? Don't open cans and dope boxes inside the dump. I put that up myself. Nobody but me can get in here, not even the president of the company, unless he's got these keys. I know a man oughtn't do a fool trick like opening cans inside, and I don't. But I put it up to remind me in case I get in too big a hurry someday. What with you here, though, watching me and me explaining how careful I gotta be, it's different from loading up to go out on a job. I ain't in a hurry today. And those boxes over in the corner are full of dope or jelly which is solidified glycerin. And those copper cans stacked on the shelves have got soup in them, liquid glycerin. If you ain't never seen any soup, I'll show you some. I got two half cans here, so I'll pour one into the other. Now, watch how I do it. I grab the funnel with my finger and I hold it in the bottom can and then hold the can I'm pouring from with my thumb and stick the nozzle of the top can in between my thumb and finger. See, nothing to it. Soup ain't like water. It won't splatter so much. It's a good thing it won't, too, because if it did, a shooter'd get it all over him when he was pouring up. Now, you understand why I hold the pouring can steady on my hand, don't you? And why, when I jab the ice pick in the corks to get them out, I stuck it in the middle of the corks and then pried down so the pick would rest on the cork. Precautions. That's why. Rub two metals together, and you might get a spark. Set up friction, and that'd be the last of you. I don't take any chances on it. Now watch. When I quit pouring, when it's all in the one can, notice how I wipe the spout on the can with my finger? If I hadn't watched it and let that drop of soup get on the outside of the can and then come in here tomorrow and picked it up to haul out to a job, that drop would still be there. Glycerin won't evaporate and it won't dissolve. So it's right there till it's exploded. And if one drop on the side of a can went off, it might set off the whole can. And it might not, but I don't chance it. Take this magazine here. It's made out of ship plate steel. Now a slug out of a 30-30 rifle might go through it, but it'd be so flattened out it wouldn't do any damage. Only guns around here used to hunt with are shotguns and maybe a 22 for a rabbit. But don't nobody use a 30-30. You get what I'm driving at? I don't take no chance, none at all. The magazine's made as strong and safe as we could make it. The nitro is kept so the temperature never gets no higher than 90 to 96 degrees because the ventilator in the roof keeps it fairly cool in summertime. So the main thing I gotta watch out for is myself. Now, usual thing when an explosion happens is that something went wrong the shooter didn't figure on. That ain't always the case, but it usually is. About five years ago, though, just to show that it ain't always the shooter, we had a big storage magazine blow up about 20 miles north of Tulsa. Didn't kill a soul. Nobody hurt, even. 
but it was about as freaky as you ever heard of. Happened about 8 o'clock one morning. Just went off. And there wasn't any evidence what done it and no witnesses. Or if there had been, they wouldn't have been alive to tell about it. There was a farmhouse just exactly one mile diagonal from the dump. The farmer and his wife and three oldest kids had already got up from the table, but the baby, a little girl about two years old, she was sitting in her high chair eating a bowl of post-toasties. When the magazine blew up, it knocked the steel door off and blew it across that mile of prairie in through the wall of the kitchen, swept every dish off the table and took the bowl of post-toasties off the tray thing in front of the baby. Went on out through the other wall of the kitchen, across the bedroom, and through the wall there and buried itself in the ground about 50 feet outside the house. Didn't hurt a hair on the baby said. Didn't even throw a splinter up in her face. Just wiped her bowl of post-toasties and the dishes on the table clear off and then went busting on through the house. Now that was a freak. You understand that, don't you? You and me might be standing on the other side of the magazine and not get hurt at all. You can't tell what Nitro is going to do, which way it's going to hit, and when it goes off. People think a shooter's a harebrained sort of fellow like the motion pictures has them. They're not, couldn't afford to be. If a man don't give a damn about his own life, or anybody else's, or about property, the torpedo company sure as hell does, and they'll fire him. You don't make but one mistake handling this stuff, though, just one mistake. And then, if they ever find an arm or a toe, they put it in a box and bury it for you. Used to be shooting was dangerous. <laughs> it used to be shooting was dangerous. All right, sorry to break character there, folks. Used to be shooting was dangerous before they got all this modern equipment to handle it. Now, come on, let's go back to the house, and I'll show you my truck. Back about 25 years ago, they didn't even let them shoot wells. No, it was longer ago than that, maybe 50 years. The states thought it ruined the oil sands, and so did the farmers that owned the land, and they wouldn't let a man get near a lease with glycerin. That was when they had moonlighters, shooters that done all their work by moonlight. They'd fix up a knapsack of soup and strap it on their backs and then crawl through the brush, and when nobody was around, they'd drop the shot in the hole and run to beat hell. Lots of men got blowed up that way, and the glycerin companies had to take anybody they could get for shooters, and even the ones they could wouldn't work for less than the very highest wages and enough whiskey to get themselves worked up to where they'd risk hauling it around on their backs. Now, when a man's got, say, 10 quarts of glycerin on his back, he's really got a load, and if he's whiskeyed up, it's twice as bad. Glycerin weighs 3 pounds to a quart, so that'd be 120 pounds that fellow was lugging around. And with all that whiskey in him and a load on his back, like as not, he'd walk right off one of those little Pennsylvania or West Virginia mountains. That kind of shooting was dangerous, sure enough. But they got it down now to where it's more scientific. Here, turn to the right at this corner and pull in at that white bungalow. The one with the shrubs and white flowers and so on in front. My wife planted those. She's a great hand for making stuff grow, but I don't fool with them much. I got plenty of time to do it if I wanted to. Because when I'm not out on a job, I gotta hang around the house close to the phone. So in case a call comes in, I'll be ready to go. She's waiting on the phone to ring right now. If it does, laying down in the bedroom there. Let's go in the back way and get some beer out of the icebox. I always keep a dozen or so bottles on hand because there ain't no drinking whiskey before going out on a job or during it. A company will can a shooter for drinking quicker than anything. If he drinks anytime but nights and holidays when there's no work, I mean... Throws a man off too bad, makes him careless. 
Uh, grab you a bottle and let's go out to the garage and look at that truck. Beer don't make you drunk, unless you got a big imagination or you're nervous to start with. Personally, myself, I ain't got any nerves. I shook them all out of me times when I get worried about a shot not going off. Come around to the left side and I'll explain the truck to you. This middle section is the soup box where I carry the cans of glycerin. I don't use jelly if I don't have to. When I use soup, I know exactly what it'll do and how to handle it. But the jelly might get hot and work out of the paper and get on the truck or on me, and then it'd be bad. The box holds 20 cans of glycerin, 10 quarts of it. So I've got 200 quarts with a full load on. That's not a big shot for these deep wells, but when I was doing my first shooting, I've seen the time when a pint of soup was plenty. Well, for one thing, the old time wells were shallow and didn't need much to start flowing. And the casing they had those days was brittle and weak. And if I'd put in more than a pint, it would have blowed the casing to splinters. You know what kind of shots we make, don't you? There's a production shot when they've just drilled in the well and want to get all the oil they can out of it. The bigger the hole at the bottom, the more oil will collect there for them to pump out. So we put in a big shot and give her the works. Then there's what you might call a recovery shot. When the well's been making a little oil already, but they want more, and call us in to blast the sand and start cracks in it so the oil can run to the hole. Now, proration has hurt the oil business in a way. It used to be when they brought in a well, they had to hurry and get all the oil they could before the market went down. And we got called out night and day. But now they've got proration in Oklahoma most of the other states, it don't make any difference what a well can flow. They won't let it be opened for more than allowable. They set allowables for each field. The Seminole is 100 barrels a day. That means any well is allowed 100 barrels a day. And if it produces more, if its potential is bigger, it gets 100 barrels and then a percentage of overall that. The reason we shoot wells now is to raise the potentials when a well is first coming in. Another kind of shot is one to break the casing. In these deep fields, they cement the casing in the hole to keep it steady. Hold it at the top and bottom especially so they can put rods and tubing in it or maybe an electric pump. That pipe's expensive stuff, sells by the foot, so the companies want to save as much of it as they can. Only way to get it out is for us to put a shot down in the hole and break the joints, and then they can pull all the pipe up that's above the break. We've got a tin shell we load the jelly in. I most generally use jelly for pipe breaking. And it's got long rods on the side that are soldered just at the bottom end. When I get ready to shoot a job, I cut off the rods down a piece from the top and bend them out and lower the shell down to where I want to set it and then pull it up till it hooks in the collar joint of the pipe. And then I got a heavy piece of cast iron pipe. I drop down my shooting line. There's a regular firing pin on the top of the jelly in the shell. And when the piece of iron hits it, it sets the load off. It don't take a very big shot to break most pipes, so I generally don't have to tamp the hole with sand or oil. On regular shots, I fill the hole right up to the top of the well. I always use pea gravel for a couple hundred feet or more above the shot, and on the rest of the way up too. If the companies don't object, but if they do, I use oil from then on up. I use what's called a cave catcher on top of the shell. It looks like a canvas umbrella turned upside down. Catches the gravel poured in the hole so it won't pack in around the shell. If I didn't pack or tamp the shot, the force of it would be lost. It blows straight up the hole. Because any explosion will follow the line of least resistance. Now, if it's back good, the force will go out the sides down and up at an angle. 
Another thing there too, we always put the detonator on top of the shot. Reason for that is because if it was on the bottom, the biggest part of the hole would be at the top of the shot instead of below where it ought to be. It's like a pear down there after we shot it. If the detonator's on top, the big part of the pear would be on the bottom. And the more hole you got down at the bottom, the more oil you'll recover and the easier the hole will be to clean out. It's got so now, on pipe pulling jobs, contractors will let somebody on the crew do the shooting. We call those boys bootleggers because they don't know any more about shooting a good job than a rock cut peddler does good whiskey. They have to guess at the size of the shot to use and how much jelly to foot of the hole. The glycerin companies won't sell them soup, and if they happen to miss on it, they blow hell out of the pipe and like as not kill some of the crew. Even us boys that have been at it for years make mistakes now and then. One mistake, and that's the last. But sometimes even on a job where we're careful as we know how to be, we're liable to mess things up. I've been on dozens of wells that had head up just as I was loading the shell. They'd flow oil on me like a dime mantle shake and roll over. We might get excited on that and tear things up generally. The way I'd get ready to shoot a well is to run the empty tin shell down to the top of it just a little above the mouth of the hole. Then I bring my soup over from the truck and load the shell. Times I've been doing the loading when the well would start flowing and with just enough pressure behind it to start lifting the shell out. Nothing for me to do then but set down my can of soup as quick and easy as I could, grab the shell and hold it right there till the flow died down. I've been drowning oil. Sometimes a well will make a barrel or two and sometimes they'll make a thousand. What causes a well to do that is that there's a sand that's still got a little pressure in it and it's made a gas bubble and lifted up the oil. Once that bubble starts boosting the oil to the top, it sucks whatever oil is left in the bottom along with it. It never does last that long, but every now and then, a shooter standing there holding his shell, and a batch of sand comes up and rubs against the shell, and it's liable to set it off. Uh, there's not enough flow to amount to anything, though. When somebody tells you about a well coming to life again, they're just telling you a lot of crap. Some more of the same stuff you'll hear over and over is how a shooter is just getting his shot in the hole when a well starts flowing and kicks a shell out and the shooter grabs it. You'll hear a driller or roughneck talk about it, but not a shooter. It can't be done. Maybe I told you glycerin weighs 3 pounds to the quart. An average shot to bring in a well around here is 200 quarts. And to make that up, we'll use 10-foot shells holding, say, 20 quarts to the 10 feet. You know how much that will weigh? 3 times 20 is 60 pounds, and we always put the load in like a chain, hanging one 10-foot shell to the bottom of the next one. So 10 times the 60 would be 600 pounds. What those men are trying to make you believe is there's some guy fool enough to try to catch a 100-foot string of shells of glycerin weighing 600 pounds. They don't make men tall enough or strong enough to do it. Here's something you ought to remember. When me or any other shooter goes out to shoot a well... We're out there on our own. We take the well over and the drilling crew or whatever men are out there get the hell on the way to where they'll be safe and leave us alone. We don't borrow somebody from them to help us and we don't carry a helper out with us. I wouldn't want one because I'd have to be telling or showing and worrying about whether he'd blow us up or not. But out there by myself, there's not but one man I gotta worry about and that's me. Only time we get any help on a job is when we're going to use more than 200 quarts, which is all we can carry in one truck, 
And if we need a bigger shot, I phone the company office and they rush another shooter down in his truck. And then he'll give me a hand if I want him to. Well shooting is a regular profession. A trade. We got to study how to do our job just like a doctor or a lawyer or a machinist does his. We spend just as much time and money learning our jobs as they do theirs. All of us except some of the old timers at the business. And they're blowing themselves out of the picture right along. We got wives and kids too and we don't want to quit living before anybody else. That's the main reason we're so careful. We got a good trade, a profession, and we want to stay right with it. We don't carry any insurance. We can't afford it. There's not but one life insurance company in the whole United States will take a chance on a shooter, and they won't insure us for more than $2,500 a man. And there ain't no premiums paid back to us on that policy either. It costs around $35 a month just for the regular payments, and there's an $85 hazardous risk comes in extra each year too. That ain't much money when you stop to think what we'd pay out. If we'd bank the money ourselves, we'd have the $2,500 in a couple of years. And the company don't carry liability insurance to take care of accidents either. Rates are too high for them too. What they do is put up a cash bomb with every state they do business in. So that in case of an accident, some men get killed or somebody's property is ruined. The people won't have to go to law with the company in its home state. And there won't be any time wasted in paying off to the widows. We do the shooting for three of the biggest majors in Oklahoma. My territory is all of Oklahoma except Northeast and part of Kansas and Texas. My company has to send in its bond papers to the national offices of these three majors every year so their lawyers can look them over and see that we're protecting the companies from getting sued in an accident. Having to put up a big cash bond is one reason why the majors won't have anything to do with these bootleg boys. They can't raise the bond in the first place and their shooters ain't got the experience in a second. Another reason we don't have to worry too much about the bootleggers cutting in our business is that they don't last long. They might run on for a couple of years or even eight and ten, but they all know they're going to get there someday and probably blow up whoever's around them too. I knew a fella from Oilton that bootlegged for years, him and his boy. They'd done mostly pipe pulling jobs, but every now and then some little oil company would hire him to shoot a well for him because he didn't pay any salaries and didn't have a bond to put up, so he'd do it cheap. He was shooting one over by the Chandler. A couple of years ago, making a production shot, he didn't have enough equipment or experience, and instead of having the drilling crew take off the rotary cable, he tried to drop the shell through it and got it stuck in the Kelly. He couldn't get it down but about halfway and didn't want to lose any time going back to the town for a smaller show. So what did him and his boy do but get some long steel rods and stand off a ways and poke the shell and try to dent it enough to where it'd fall on down the hole. I guess you've already figured out what happened. About ten quarts of soup went off after he poked on it five minutes or so and it tore the derrick down, killed his boy and tore him up so bad he died in three days and killed one of the roughnecks that was off about two hundred feet behind a tree piece of steel off the derrick blew over and cut down the little sapling the roughneck was hiding behind. Well, you can imagine what happened after that. The oil company had tried to save money on the job by hiring this shooter, but by the time they got through paying all the lawsuits and buying a new derrick and drilling tools, it was out over $200,000. Once a man's a shooter, he stays with it till his last court goes off. He gets as good pay as any job in the field, and that's counting the farm bosses and the superintendents too. And when times are slack, like they were in 32, 33, 
He goes right on drawing his money. There ain't no layoffs. And in my company, they don't even cut salaries when hard times come along. I don't say all companies won't cut them, but mine sure as hell hasn't. Our hours are good because they just about cut out night work, it being more dangerous than daytime because we can't see good enough even with a dozen electric lights strung around the derrick. And then, too, it's got to where we don't have to follow booms anymore. When I done my first shooting, we had to make the boom fields all together, pay high prices, and live like tomcats. But now, with proration cutting down on drilling and no flowing wells wide open, we get to buy us a home in our headquarters town and settle down and live like other people. They give me everything I need to do a good job with. This truck's got the latest equipment and the best that money can buy. We carry the glycerin out to the job in copper cans because they won't spring a leak as quick as the tin cans we used to shoot with. We put the copper cans in the rubber boots and the soup box in the truck and then the soup box itself has got a steel frame lined with asbestos. Two layers of copper with felt pad in between them and a layer of felt to rest on the boots. There's one chance in a million the glycerin could leak out of the copper cans, but if it did, the boots would catch it. If they leaked too, the felt padding would catch it, and if all of them leaked together, the copper plate would stop it from getting out. You know what they used to put in the bottom of the soup boxes to catch leaks? Straw. Common old barnyard straw. They didn't have good cans or boxes and didn't think about using felt padding. So they put the straw in the bottom of the soup box to take up the jars and bounces. Instead of the boots, they used to partition off the soup box and then put pieces of old plush carpet between the cans. Wasn't anything unusual those days for a shooter to be herding his load out to a job and have it go off. A can would spring a leak and the glycerin would leak out through the straw and out on the running gear. And when enough of it collected and they hit a hard enough bump, the whole thing would go up. They used horses at first. Soon as they made it legal to shoot a well and done away with the moonlighters. And then they started getting roads built across the country and into the brush, where they could use a buckboard most of the way to a well. They had one shooter, used to work up in Osage County, got blown clear across two states. He went up to his magazine one day, and about an hour later there was an explosion. They never did find any piece of him or his team or the buckboard. The insurance company... And the glycerin company looked around and talked to people that had seen him go up to the magazine. And then they finally dropped it. But about two years later, the shooter's wife got worried and spilt it to the insurance company. She collected $5,000 on his death. But instead of meeting her husband up in New Mexico, she took up with some oil field worker. And then she got afraid her husband would catch up with her and kill her. What happened was a shooter exploded the magazine on purpose and then took the team and buckboard and hit out for New Mexico. When they caught him, the papers played it up that he was the man who got blowed across two states. <laughs> states. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry folks, bear with me. We're almost, we're almost to the end. After that, they got started building cars. The glycerin companies bought them and kept adding equipment till they got up to one like this. This truck here cost over $2,000 just for the frame and the engine and the cab and special shock absorbers. And the soup box and shelves and reels and stuff we added on ourselves cost about that much again. This big reel on back here is the one that lets my shell down in the hole. 
It's operated off a power takeoff from the motor, a chain arrangement that lets the truck motor pull in gear without moving the truck. We have to know how many feet were down in the hole, so we got a special calibrated line on another reel, this one here, and it's measured off into hundreds of feet. There's a gauge on the reel, tells what the weight of the shell is and line is, and then there's a special hydraulic brake to stop both reels and hold the shell just where I want it. Now the first glycerin I ever worked with was up in Finley, Ohio. 27 years ago last August, I was a cable tool driller, but times got pretty slack and I saw I was going to have to get in something else. I wanted to get in a supply house because that was what my youngest brother was in and it looked like a good thing to both of us, but they were cutting down and he had a hard time staying on himself, much less getting me on. I heard of a job open in a glycerin plant and I went up to see about it. All I knew about explosives was what I'd seen in the war. But a job was a job. It was making glycerin, working in a little field plant, and it didn't pay much, but I took it. The plant was so ablamed small, we had to do all the work right there to get out a batch of, say, 10 quarts, but it paid me off in experience later on. I kept at that job almost two years. Till I was over 22 and then I got on as a shooter. They used to think the best shooters were tool men, ones that had experience drilling a well and watching other shooters work, but they've got over that idea anymore. So I got on as a shooter, $200 a month to start with, and I kept at it till there in Kansas and Indiana I was making $600 a month for a while. They didn't pay commissions then either, all straight salary. And the booms were where they wanted the glycerin. So I made them in Ohio, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Indiana, New Mexico, and Illinois. Maybe a few more, but I don't remember offhand. I never did have an accident on a job either. Never got hurt myself and never tore up any property. And pretty soon, I got a reputation for being careful. And then I could get a job with any glycerin company going. I did get hurt last winter, too. I was out on a job near Caddo. And my block that I used to hang from a derrick to run my shooting line over and let my shell down with, it broke. And I had to get it fixed before I could shoot the well. They had a little oil company machine shop out there in the field because it was so far from a big town. So I took the pulley block over there and got a new piece welded on and then drilled a hole for a bolt. Now I was holding the block while the machinist turned the drill press and the thumb of my glove on my right hand caught in the bit and twisted it up and... Well, anyway, you can see that's why my thumb looks how it does. Now, what do you think? Was I off on my own with that? No, sir. The company paid me my check just like I've been putting in the days all along. Sent the shooter down to take over till I could get right again and gave me a cash bonus. Because of what happened to my thumb. That's the way they treat their men and that's why I've been with them 14 years straight. That was the only accident I ever had, but I've seen plenty. Nothing to them. They're all alike, except for something like me and my finger. When glycerin goes off one time, it's like any other time it ever went off. If it's close to the top of the ground and somebody's near to it, that man's gone for good. Some accidents kill more than others, and that's about all. I've lost too many good friends to tell about the ones I've seen. Well, there you have it, folks. The words of Shorty Moses back in the late 1930s. Uh, Shorty was evidently a, 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 a phenomenal shooter, and he was careful. 
And uh, I think what's most uh, impressive, if you if you go back and you listen to that again, um, is Shorty do so much about so many different subject areas. Uh, you look at he he knew he knew about science and chemistry. He knew about engineering. He knew about about economics and I, I mean it's just you, you you look at all the things that and you can't be fooled by the time and the and the and the culture that he was part of shorty knew a lot and i i bet there was a lot of people back then um just like him so it's a great story i love to go back and look at how these things were done and and you can see that even some of the things that we still do today they were doing they these things started a long time ago and and we've of course we've polished them and made them better and perfected them but but um they were they were blowing stuff up inside the ground way back then so uh that's it that's gonna do it for today and um Appreciate you if you're still listening. I appreciate you listening all the way through that story. And of course, uh, I would like to thank our sponsor again, Cognite. Uh, check out Cognite. They're doing some amazing things with industrial data and things that even Shorty wouldn't believe now if he, if he were to see it. And uh, uh, you, can, you can learn more about them at makedatadomore.cognite.com. And also, you probably heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. We have a lot of stuff going on at OGGN. We are we are ramping up this year. I mean, actually, last year was really busy too. But we got new programs coming out. We got there's new podcasts. Um, there's there's my uh, other podcast, which is kind of a sister show to this one, which is Oil and Gas Digital Doers. So uh, we 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 talk not so much about the tech in that one, but we talk about people actually getting digital done. There's some fascinating stuff. We also have some other uh, new shows that have come out. Energy Scale Ups with Jose Solis. We got Journey to the Energy C-Suite with Ryan Sanford. Uh, that one is already becoming uh, extremely popular. And and we are resuming the famous OGGN Happy Hour events starting uh, this month in June. And and they're going to be they're going to be going on a regular schedule just like they used to. And so uh, if you're in Houston and uh, and and or if you just happen to be traveling to Houston, come to one of our happy hour events. There's uh, they're always a lot of fun and a lot of great information, good networking. That's going to do it. Uh, one last note of thanks to our audio fixer guy, Mr. Mac Roman. Uh, he's going to have fun with this one, I can imagine, because um, he's going to he he'll be laughing the whole time and he won't be able to do his work but that is going to be his problem and the next thing that you hear is going to be savannah wilson with the events on deck hey everybody it's savannah from oggn and here are the events on deck for june 2021 this month we have six events but if you'd like the full list you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter we send it out every month and it includes more info about the events that i talk about here We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A and ONG. This is gonna be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. 
Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.